Turn with me this morning to Psalm 22. Before we read from Psalm 22 this morning, I want to talk about it a little bit. And in, in fact, I'm going to read it in, in a couple of parts as we go, and not all at once uh, at, the, at the beginning as, as usual. Start the recording here. If the Bible in your lap is like most Bibles these days, it has black letters in it, it has red letters in it. Uh, for the words of Jesus, the weird words Jesus actually spoke uh, bodily in his time uh, on earth here. Uh, we understand, of course, the whole Bible, every word of it is the inspired and inerrant word of God. Uh, for some reason, God didn't get red letters in the Old Testament when he spoke. Um, and so I'm, I'm not particularly in favor of that, that practice that has become common. Um, and yet... There is something unique about those places where we have recorded uh, the actual words that Jesus spoke during his time here on earth. Not at all in the sense that they are more important or more reliable or more authentic, uh, which is where the red letter tradition arose from. But, but they are unique and uniquely precious in hearing the thoughts of Jesus as he actually spoke them to the disciples or spoke to the crowds or spoke to Pilate or spoke to the Father in prayer. I think if the Bible, our, our Bible publishers were more consistent, we would also have Psalm 22 in red letters. Uh, what I want you to understand as we begin this morning is that while we have uh, infallible and authoritative second-hand accounts in the Gospels of what happened in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, uh, in Psalm 22 we have a first-hand account of what happened and Jesus on the cross and following his resurrection. Uh, David, who's the author of Psalm 22, is uh, a type of Christ, as we say, like Moses and others in the Old Testament, who in their role that God called them to and the events through their life, they, they point forward to who Christ would be, what role he would fulfill, uh, what his work would be. Um, they're there to reflect the person and work of Christ. And that's seen in David's life. It's also... It comes out significantly in the Psalms. Uh, Peter explained how Jesus functions this way at, at Pentecost. Uh, we read from Acts chapter 2 earlier. But he was a prophet, David, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. And seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Peter tells us there, David wrote about the resurrection in the Psalms. And he's, he goes on to quote specifically Psalm 16 there. But it's certainly also seen in Psalm 22, along with the crucifixion. Um, nothing we know about David in his life accounts for the descriptions and that the, the expectations that we read in Psalm 22. Um, it, it, it describes things that happened to David you know, it describes them figuratively, his suffering and so on, but describes literally what happened to Jesus, especially on the cross. So David speaks prophetically of Christ in Psalm 22, but we can say even more than that about Psalm 22. More than just that Psalm 22 talks about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Psalm, two, or Psalm 22 is the words of Jesus. 
Uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, it, it quotes Psalm 22 saying, So Jesus did, was not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, and then it quotes Psalm 22. Not David says, but as Jesus says in Psalm 22. And then it quotes one of the parts that's not even as, as um, obviously and explicitly uh, seen in, in, in the life of Jesus. Um, all of Psalm 22 is about Jesus and by Jesus. It's the thoughts and, and words of Jesus himself uh, through David speaking prophetically. So there's no psalm that speaks more clearly or prophetically of Jesus, especially in his crucifixion and his resurrection in Psalm 22. And there, there are many striking descriptions in the middle of this psalm of the crucifixion that, that we'll, we'll note a little bit later. But I want to point out before, as we begin here, just two parts of this psalm that we find Jesus actually speaking in the Gospels. So, um, very familiarly, uh, Jesus takes on the first verse of this psalm on the cross. Uh, Matthew, in his Gospel, relates. Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. But look also at the very end of the psalm. The end of verse 31. There's this anticipation they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. That last, that last verb, he has performed it. There is a nuance of completion, something being done. Uh, and the, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, is, is translated in English with the word um, completed or finished. And so the end of that verse could be, could be quoted in English, he has finished it, or it is finished by him. And of course, we hear the words that John uh, tells us that Jesus spoke on the cross, uh, that we just read a little bit ago, it is, it is finished. Um, so the Gospels point us to the fact that Jesus spoke the first line of Psalm 22 and the last line of Psalm 22, at least on the cross. Uh, since the Gospels are, of course, summaries of what happened in Jesus' life, summaries of what he said, and no, nowhere close to everything that happened or that was said, it, it's been suggested by some that perhaps we're to understand that Jesus spoke or maybe sang the entire psalm, Psalm 22, uh, on the cross, in, in agony and in hope. And in one sense, Jesus is not quoting Psalm 22, uh, Psalm 22, in many, many years before, was quoting Jesus uh, and his experience and his thoughts of the cross and of the resurrection. Uh, Peter um, also gives a remarkably relevant description of David's work as a prophet in the Psalms in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours... And David was a prophet speaking the Psalms. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And, and nothing embodies that better in the Old Testament than David predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ in, in Psalm 22. So let's look at this Psalm together this morning that we would better see Jesus suffering on the cross and the glories of the resurrection uh, with the goal that, that we would see and receive him as Savior who died and raised for us and that we would also be able to sing this psalm together with, with better understanding of how it shows us Christ. 
So I'm going to read uh, first the, the first 21 verses at this point. Actually, almost to the end of verse 21. Um, and, and I want you to look for the, the basic pattern through these verses is uh, the, the I, me sections where uh, the, the psalmist is describing suffering. And then the, they alternate with you sections addressing God um, and trust for God. Uh, this is what I'm experiencing, and then, but Lord, this is who you are, and this is why I trust you. It kind of goes back and forth. So the first 21 verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you laid me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, the psalm begins with this cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And verse 2, you do not answer. David, again, describing probably what he felt like in a moment of his suffering, but as throughout this whole psalm, describing what Jesus literally experienced. God the Father left him to die on the cross. He was calling out and there was no answer. And yet the psalm moves quickly in verses 3 to 5 to proclaim God's holiness. The Father is still good and holy and right. In verses 4 and 5, He says, Our, our fathers put their trust in You. You were faithful. You answered them. You've proven Yourself throughout all of history. But then it's immediately back to a contrast in, in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, despised. Think of that in terms of this speaking Jesus' mind. Jesus had already humbled Himself beyond our imagination and comprehension in in becoming a man. And He's been a perfectly obedient Son of God. And yet, He's more comparable, He says, to a worm now. Unjustly brutalized and debased, a worm and not a man. Uh, 
verses 7 7 and 8 go on, that this one who deserves for others only to fall on their faces in the dirt and worship him and beg for mercy, they're taunting him. He's being taunted by those he's created who are rebelling against him. And then verse 8 especially is exactly the way that Jesus was taunted on the cross. Look at verse 8 as I read Matthew 27. They taunted Jesus. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. and We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he loves him. Verse 9 flips back to another you section addressing God. Verses 9 and 10. Yet you are... He who brought me forth from the womb, you made me trust when upon my mother's breasts, upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God. He, he reflects on God's personal care for him. And it's not, been a, it's not been an episodic up and down thing. God has cared for him constantly since birth. He's depended on him. And verse 12 to 18 then is the longest section about uh, Jesus' suffering. Uh, the psalmist suffering. Uh, this is the section we sang in, in selection C just a few minutes ago. And again, the description here goes beyond uh, David's experience. He describes figuratively maybe his his suffering, uh, but but what's being described here is is someone dying. That the psalmist is narrating their own execution, and it's not just any execution. Hundreds of years before. Uh, crucifixion was known to the world. It, it's described uh, here uh, vividly and prophetically. So see here the scene of, of Jesus' death. It, it pictures enemies circling. You can picture people circled around the cross. It describes them staring at him and taunting him. And, and he describes in verse 12 as dangerous, hungry animals encircling. And then it goes on to even more particular uh, descriptions of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, again, we, we noted the taunts of verse 8. Verse 14 speaks of his, his bones being out of joint, and sources confirm that being a common thing with crucifixion for his shoulders and elbows to come out of joint. Uh, verse 15 speaks of the exhaustion and, and the thirst that would that come from the blood loss of crucifixion. And again, lest we think, well, you know, this could describe various kinds of suffering and, and death. Coincidentally, uh, John in chapter 19 tells us explicitly to see this connection. He says, to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. And verse 16, most strikingly, speaks of piercing his hands and feet. There's, there's no other known form of, of, of execution that, that involves that. Uh, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We just read of the, the soldiers doing that at the foot of the cross in John 19 as well. And it's possible in verse 14, I am poured out like water. It's, it should be connected to Jesus when he was pierced, blood and water were, were poured out. Well, after this description, he, he turns back to one more plea to God. And, and it's more urgent and, and desperate than the first two. Verse 20, Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You see, this is the, this is the climax of the, the desperate lament. 
Right? He's at he's at the point of the sword. He's in the lion's mouth. He's on the horn of the ox. This is the point of death. Right? Death is here. I need to pause at this point and be sure we understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. It wasn't because he was powerless, because he was overcome by his enemies. He, he died willingly, passively. Why was he forsaken by the Father? Well, Jesus came into the world for sin, right? To save sinners from the guilt and punishment of their sin, because all people fall short of the glory of God and, and sin before him. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be right with God. We cannot avoid just punishment of our sins against a holy God. Except that Jesus, as Paul said, became sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. Or as, as he says in Galatians, he became a curse for us. So on the cross, though Jesus had lived as a perfect son, God the Father cursed the son. He, he forsook him. He counted the sins of all those who believe in Jesus against Him. And this is the only, the only hope and confidence that you could have that God loves you or forgives you or will never leave you or forsake you is that Christ was forsaken. Right? That He experienced no answer to His prayer. That he was separated from the loving protection of the Father. He was publicly shamed. He was rejected as someone who is guilty of, of many sins. He was a faithful son, but he was published as a, punished as a, a rebel so that you and I, who are sinful rebels, can be treated as sons, be seen and loved as his sons and daughters. I trust it, it pains any of us to hear or to read about horrible injustices if you read about someone who is wrongly imprisoned for many years, or you read about the war in Europe and, and little kids of horrible burns as a, a you know, collateral um, casualty of, of, a, of a senseless war, these things anger us. And yet those things pale in comparison with the injustice of the death of Jesus. A, a perfectly obedient and good son, a gracious Savior. He was left to die by his Father, and yet it's through that willing anguish that you and I can be counted justified before God. So do you see how great Jesus' love for you is in this, this terrible description of his suffering? How, how faithful he was to the Father and, and to you. Too often I've heard people say about psalms like this, boy, that was a downer, or what a, what a dirge that was, you know, when we sing a psalm of lament, or that one doesn't make you feel good. You know, sadly missing the very point of these psalms. Thinking that the point of every act of worship is somehow to make us feel good through happy words. That's not the only design God has for, for our worship in our world. Do you see how much more powerfully, how much more preciously God has demonstrated the love of His Son for you in preserving these words, in preserving this, this description for us to reflect on and meditate on? What, what a gift it is that you could see how great your sin is, that it would necessitate the suffering and death of the Son of God, but also see how great the love of Jesus, the King of kings, the Creator of the universe, that He would endure this for you. 
Well, the story doesn't end there. It cannot end there. In fact, we can't have assurance of any of these, these things if, if Jesus merely died. And so in verse 21, at the end of verse 21, there's a dramatic sudden reversal in this psalm, reversal in the story. And the rest of the psalm is, is praise and joy suddenly. And so looking at number two on your outline, I want you to look at the end of verse 21, the part that I, I, I didn't read yet. There, there's a single word there at the end of verse 21 that probably should be separate. It, it, should, be with, it should go with what follows. The, the, the verse break there is, is unfortunate, uh, in other words. Uh, the, the word in Hebrew there proclaims simply, you have answered me. You have answered me. And, and some, some translations better than mine here do separate that out and, and put it with what goes next. The, the New English translation, for example, has a period and then a, and then a new sentence. But you have answered me. So he, he's at the, sword, at the edge of the sword. He's in the lion's mouth. He's on the horn of the ox, period. But you have answered me. It introduces the rest of the psalm. This is, this is the point of the resurrection. After no answer, after all of these pleas, after the, he's at the point of death, that the answer comes. Though Jesus truly died, the grave could not hold him. And, and when his work and his suffering were finished, God accepted his sacrifice and, and all that it meant. Um, that, that was proven that he accepted it by rescuing, by raising him from the dead. And so I want you to see now how that is celebrated and proclaimed in this psalm. First, in that Jesus is uh, pictured as a risen and gospel-preaching prophet. Uh, Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. What's what's going on here? Uh, I will tell of your name... My brethren, in the midst of the assembly, well, the, the setting for this section of the psalm is given in verse 25. The, the key to it is there in verse 25, where it says, I will pay my vows before those who fear him. I will pay my vows. This is someone paying their vows. That's a, a, a technical phrase, a technical setting in the Old Testament. Be familiar to the Jews, familiar to those in the Old Testament. The law of God prescribed that you could make a vow, you could make a promise to God, you know, once once something happens that you are anticipating or hope, or maybe God delivered you from from sickness or something like that, uh, you could pay a vow. Is is how it's put in the Old Testament, a way that you would worship God when He He delivered you or He answered some prayer. It was generally a sacrifice or an offering that that you would bring uh, involved, uh, similar to uh, the peace offerings or the thank offerings in the Old Testament. They were they weren't the regular prescribed sacrifices. They were spontaneous. You, you, you come and worship God whenever you want with these. But God describes how you were to do this. How you were to pay your vows. There, there were restrictions to it. So this is described in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. Uh, you were, for one thing, you are not allowed to pay your vow in, in thanks to God privately. So you couldn't bring your gift to the temple, hand it over to the priest, and walk home. You're not allowed to do that. You had to throw a, a giant feast, a party. This is really the point of, of the whole thing. Um, a celebration. And it could last even two days long, Leviticus 2 says. 
And you are, another restriction on this is you are not allowed to, in this, this great feast, this celebration of what God had done for you, you're not allowed to just invite your family. That's strictly forbidden as well. You had to invite your family and your neighbors and the poor and everyone in, in your neighborhood, basically. Everyone in the town. And the point of all of this was that you would gather all of these people, including the poor and needy and everyone in your town, to tell them what God had done for you. And, and you would worship God together. That's, that's what this scene, uh, that, that this scene here in Psalm 22 is picturing. There are a number of other psalms that, that picture this. Psalm 116, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. So you gather His people together and you have a party. You, you tell, this is what God did for me and this is why we're celebrating. So that's what's pictured in this psalm immediately after the answered prayer. You have answered me. And so I'm having this celebration to tell everyone, Lord, what you have done for me. So who, who is doing that in this psalm? Ultimately, it's, it's Jesus. And again, lest we, lest we should think that this is speculative or, 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 or something like that, uh, Hebrews 2 tells us explicitly it's Jesus in Psalm 22. In Hebrews 2, the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers, and then he quotes Psalm 22, verse 22. He's the one who stands up in the midst of his brothers and, and proclaims to them, to the rest of humanity, this is what the Father has done for me. And calls people to celebrate with him, to celebrate his resurrection. He pictures Jesus risen from the dead to preach the gospel, to preach the good news of his death for sinners and resurrection from the dead. He's preaching that he, he performed his vow. He, he offered himself as a sacrifice, but that the Father heard and raised him from the dead to give life to those who uh, would trust in him. And that the whole New Testament joins Jesus in inviting people to a feast with Jesus, a feast on, on himself. Jesus himself had said in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So we see our, our risen Lord as a prophet of God, raised from the dead to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. Well, the last part of this psalm then pictures him as a ruling and conquering king. And, and I want at this point to read the rest of the psalm. So I'm going to read from, from verse 22 through the end. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear Him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Those who go down to the dust will bow before Him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation that they will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born, that He has performed it. 
Well, after this, this vow paying scene where this, this local celebration, verse, verse 27 suddenly proclaims, all the ends of the earth will remember in terms of the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. So suddenly this, this local scene of a Thanksgiving feast, if you will, it, it explodes to include the entire world in its blessings in this psalm. Uh, Derek Kidner comments at, at this point in the psalm, now David's language overflows all of its natural banks as the thanksgiving proper even to a king. His point is that you know, a king can make great claims, like a king like David, about how what happens to him and the good news he has affects a lot of other people. But verse 27, if, if we haven't seen it yet in the psalm, goes so far beyond David, we can't possibly be speaking of David. Right? It, it affects the entire world. Suddenly this blessing of a, a local gathering covers the entire earth. The, the resurrection has implications for the entire world. Verse 28 goes on, For the kingdom of the, is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Uh, Jesus' death and resurrection is good news offered to the whole world that, that would and has changed the world. Well, what does the resurrection mean for the world? What, is it, what does it proclaim to you? Uh, I, I want to consider four things, fourthly as you see on your outline there. But the resurrection in this psalm proclaims, uh, first, the message of the resurrection in Psalm 22 proclaims justice for the afflicted. Justice for the afflicted. Because Jesus was rescued from death, has conquered death for you, and lives as your Savior, He assures you, verse 22, verse 24 again, that He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Or has he hidden his face? However you're suffering, no matter why it seems perhaps in your life that, that God has been silent, or whatever injustice you have faith, God, faced, God has heard you. God raised Jesus from the dead to assure you of that, that God will vindicate you, give you justice as he did Jesus. He may ask you to wait. He will ask you to suffer but you have not been forgotten. You've been made a beloved child of God if your faith is in His Son, Jesus. Maybe this morning you don't feel that so much. Maybe you don't feel the need for that. Um, your, your life is fairly comfortable. There aren't any great crises or burdens that you're carrying. You don't feel like the afflicted and the poor. Uh, but you are. You and I are. And we'll feel it sooner rather than later. Some of you this morning do feel that way. You're struggling for hope, maybe. You're desperately in need of the assurance of this verse, of the resurrection. Well, secondly, the Psalm 22 proclaims of the resurrection mercy for the dead. The last thing that's proclaimed in this, this vow celebration scene here in verse 26 is, let your heart live forever. If you belong to Jesus, you will live forever. Because Jesus lives forever as a man. Because He raised from the dead. Verse 29 also says those who die who can't keep themselves alive, God keeps them alive. They will worship Him forever. But, but recognize that reflects mercy to you. right? You and I who deserve what this the first half of this psalm describes, we deserve for verses... 1 through 21 to be our testimony, 
and to end right there with no answer. But the death and resurrection of Jesus proclaim God's mercy to you if you acknowledge your need for it and ask for it. Paul writes in Colossians 2, And you who are dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Thirdly, letter C, the the resurrection proclaims here conversion for the proud. Uh, Similarly, this this final section here, Jesus proclaims that not only the the afflicted people near him, you know, as it pictures him gathering neighbors and the poor and family and everyone, not only those near him, but, but prosperous, prideful people from around the world will repent and, and worship him. Verse 29 uh, again says, All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. It literally says, All the fat ones of the earth. Not literally the fat ones, right? It's, it's, it's figurative for those who have fattened themselves on this earth, on, on all that it has to offer, and, and ignoring God. Right? They're self sufficient, but in the end, they can't save themselves, the psalmist says. They're headed towards death without the life-giving, resurrected Savior. But some of them will come and bow before God as well. And certainly this describes all of us in some way. Right? In our, our repentance and God humbling us and graciously giving us faith. But it's meant primarily, I think, as a comfort and encouragement to God's people concerning the power of the, the, the preaching of His Word. As, as we look out in the world and see the, the fat and the prosperous, so to speak. Right? God's word and promises executed by his risen and reigning king will conquer the whole world one day. So even now we can have, we can have hope, we can pray with hope for the prosperous, you know, wicked billionaires and rulers and so on of, of our world that Christ might humble them and, and grant even to them faith and repentance that they would come and gather at the feast, so to speak, and worship the Lord. And then finally, the psalm speaks of the resurrection coming with a joyful responsibility for believers. A joyful responsibility. The final verses speak of the good news preached to coming generations. Look at verse 30 again. Posterity, coming generation, will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born. I think there's pictured there three generations. This will be passed on from generation to generation. How is it that the good news of the resurrection of Jesus powerfully goes out? Of course, it depends on the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, but it's, it's through you. It's through His people. You are called to do as Jesus does in this psalm, to invite the rich and the needy, to invite neighbors, to invite the nations to hear what Jesus has done, how He suffered and died for sins and conquered death, what He's done for you. You're called to do what Jesus does in this psalm. This is what God has done for me. That's an expectation throughout the entire Psalter of all the nations coming to worship God. And we sing in in Psalm 67, for example, 
asking for the blessing of God for that purpose. Lord, bless us and shine your face upon us and so on, so that all the peoples of the earth will come to know your salvation. The Psalms, in looking forward to the resurrection and the eternal reign of Christ, pray for this conversion of the nations when people from the whole earth will believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 72, we sang last week, is, is a prayer for exactly that. May the desert tribes bow down before him. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. So we proclaim to people, as, as I proclaim to you this morning, as Jesus does in Psalm 22, that you can do nothing to create meaning for yourself, to satisfy yourself, to justify yourself, but that he has performed it as the psalm ends. He has accomplished it. It is finished by him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you for this psalm, uh, for this uh, window into your mind as you suffered unjustly, uh, unspeakably the wrath and the silence of the Father for us. This uh, window into your steadfast faith and trust in God the Father and your your joy in the resurrection. A joy that was not just for you, but that you shared with your brothers and sisters, with us. And we share in the joy and the victory of your resurrection life today. And we pray that you would help us to live in it every day, to help us to work toward and long for all the ends of the earth, coming and worshiping you, as this psalm anticipates. We pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat>